Can I invite you to turn to uh, Romans chapter 3? Romans chapter 3. And I want to read the first eight verses. Paul has been arguing that religious background is no protection against the judgment of God. Um, uh, So he's particularly been addressing the Jews in the congregation who'd be hearing this letter read to them. And so in in chapter 3, verse 1, Uh, Paul says, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if your unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my, my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. So religious background and religious practice are no protection against the judgment of God. And the Jews who are hearing this letter read to them would claim that their heritage and right of circumcision set them apart from the rest of the world, that they would would not come under judgment. But Paul has been at pains to point out the basis of God's judgment is their breaking of the covenant that God has made with them. And the essential feature of that covenant was a heart commitment to God. To be a real Jew was to be one inwardly, not just outwardly. It's all about the work of the Spirit in the heart. And it's a reminder once again, I think, that... uh, God is not interested in empty religion. It's it's very impressive on the outside. Um, But he is interested in heart transformation. And that's something that only the Spirit of God can do. Only the Spirit of God can melt a cold heart of stone and give a warm beating heart of faith, love and hope towards God. Only God can do that. So as we come here to chapter 3, Paul he begins to anticipate certain questions that the congregation might be asking. Uh, these Jewish, read, uh, Jewish listeners might be asking. Uh, and there are essentially three of those questions. I want to just work our way through those questions uh, this, this afternoon. Uh, 
And uh, just to paraphrase them, the first one is, is heritage an, ad- an advantage? Is heritage an advantage? Paul asks this question in verse 1. Uh, then what advantage has a Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? And Paul here is imagining some Jews hearing what he's saying, and you know he seems to be saying that circumcision is of no value at all, especially when you look back to two verse, chapter 2, verse 27, uh, where he says this, Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. It's almost as though circumcision is irrelevant uh, to the question. And it seems to be that um, they, they'll be hearing this as, as Paul's saying, non-Jews can be in a better position with God without circumcision. So the question then is, what advantage is there to be being a Jew? In fact, isn't it a liability to be a Jew and to be circumcised? Isn't it, isn't it after all, a hindrance to their relationship with God? And today we might translate that sentiment into the present time and ask a slightly different question, but it's really the same kind of question. Is there any advantage in being a church member and being baptized and having a Christian upbringing or or having Christian parents? Is there any advantage to all of that? Now hold on to that thought and we'll come back to it. But Paul answers immediately, uh, answers his imagined objectors, uh, verse 2, much in every way. Is there an advantage to being a Jew? Yes, much in every way. And you would think then at this point, Paul might give a great list of advantages of, of being a Jew. That's often how we would make a case for something. We would say, yes, there's great advantage in this because you have this, 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 and this. A long list of advantages. And Paul does later mention a list of advantages. You might want to look ahead to chapter 9. And uh, Paul's talking about his, uh, how in his heart he feels uh, for his fellow Jews, his kinsmen, And in verses 4 and 5 he says this, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But at this point in chapter 2, he only points to one advantage. That the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What does he mean by that? They were entrusted with the oracles of God. Well, what's an oracle? Um, it's, uh, it's something of an... It carries the idea, the Old Testament idea, of a weighty revelation of God. A weighty revelation of of God. In other words, they are words that come from God and they have the gravitas of divine authority. What are the words? Well, of course, it's the Old Testament scriptures. It's the whole thing. The law and the prophets 
from Genesis to Malachi, all of them have been given to the Jews of old by God as a trust. They were entrusted to the Jews. And this was not given in an incidental and accidental or take it or leave it kind of way. Rather, it was given intentionally and deliberately by God. Every page of the Old Testament given by God intentionally and deliberately for the people of God and deposited into their care so that they might cherish it and keep it and use it to the glory of God. So what was in these oracles of God? Well, all the things that we have just mentioned, all the benefits. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. Uh, From them, their their race according to flesh is the Christ who is God over all. Uh, They've got everything they need to continue in communion and life with God. Uh, So, maybe put it in slightly different terms, but you can maybe see what what these are. The scriptures offer identity and community. That's what is meant by the sense of adoption, being gathered into God's family. Community and identity. There is deep relationship. That's what is intended by this idea of covenant. Deep relationship with God. Covenant. Boundaries to live by. That's what the law is for. It sets the boundaries. It marks marks the fences, the, the safe places to go. And the unsafe places you shouldn't go. Boundaries. And then it's full of hope and expectation. Or in other words, the promises. And so we have a sense of the future and the glory to come. And all of it pointing to the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who appeared in due time. But the Old Testament is full of prophecy and types and shadows pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the, to the Messiah. Now, as you think about these things, aren't all of those things what human beings long for generally identity and community is that what people want they want their identity to be recognized and to be affirmed they want to have communities that they can gather in people that they can meet with and share with loneliness is the biggest problem is and people long for community and identity people want relationship They want deep relationships. And people want boundaries. Uh, Believe it or not, people do value boundaries. Society doesn't work without boundaries. And people value having those fences that shouldn't be crossed. And people love to have hope. Isn't that what the politicians all do? The hopey changey thing, as somebody cynically once said. But, you know, politicians are purveyors of hope to a, a, maybe an unsuspecting electorate, aren't they? But they're always trying to talk about hope 
and future and the expectation. And people lap it up if the person's a good communicator. Or a Messiah. Somebody you can follow. Everybody wants somebody to follow. Everybody's looking for somebody to follow. All of this is found in the oracles of God. It's all found in the scriptures. God provides it for us all. So what an advantage to be a Jew who is brought up with all of this around them. But but if only they had received those oracles with faith and believed them. They could have had it all. Instead, they opted only for the outward sign. Well, it's not difficult, I think, to see how this applies to those of us who have a Christian background and uh, even those who are baptized. It's possible to have all these sorts of things, access to the Bible, Christian parents who teach us, a church to go to, a church that is faithful perhaps. But it's possible never to truly grasp the oracles of God by faith. It's possible never to truly grasp the gospel by faith. It's possible never to truly lay hold of the Messiah that the the oracles of God speak of by faith. To wholly entrust yourself to that Messiah. To give yourself to the Savior. This is a This is a big problem with much of what passes for Christianity today. We cannot see the privileges we have in Christ. And yes, we all know that we're supposed to say, yes, we are privileged, aren't we? We are so privileged. And we can all nod our heads at each other and say, yes, we're privileged. It's such a great privilege to be a Christian. But we actually have trouble believing it. And we will not grasp what it is we have by faith. And instead, uh, we are constantly distracted and we have our heads turned in all sorts of directions. And instead of putting, f- instead of putting faith in God who has given, his, given us these marvelous privileges, we start to put our trust in certain external acts of religious performance. Well, people who act without faith are called unfaithful people, not surprisingly. Unfaithful people. Which brings us to our next question, which I paraphrase. Does God, fa- does God fail if his people fail to be faithful? Look at the next question in verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? Does the faithlessness, their faithlessness, nullify the faithfulness of God? Now the background to this in Paul's writing here is, is as we've noticed, the, the covenant that seems to have been being worked out in history. And of course what I mean by covenant is that God enters into a special kind of relationship with his people that he calls covenant. You see this all through the, the Bible. It's a relationship where, uh, where you have two parties 
uh, and there are obligations placed on both sides. Blessings are promised for fulfillment and sanctions for failure. And God's covenants are like this. His side of the covenant is that he makes promises about what he will do and then he keeps those promises and he will make them happen. And our side, our commitment is to put our faith in the promises. And out of that faith and the expectation of God's fulfillment on his side, we eagerly do what he says. So as we said this morning, if you were here, uh, faith itself does not achieve anything. It doesn't merit anything. It doesn't earn anything. Faith doesn't do anything. But without it, there is no real change of life. And so real, out of real faith comes evidence of faith's existence in the form of the obedience of the new believer. And so somebody who receives the gospel suddenly has a whole change of attitude to life and begins to be obedient to the word of God. They want to do what Jesus says. And so you find in the Old Testament you have this sequence of covenants. We've been looking through the book of Genesis on Sunday mornings and we've already seen the first post-fall uh, covenantal arrangement that God made through Genesis 3.15. Remember that famous promise uh, made to the serpent, actually, and overheard by Adam and Eve, that uh, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And he will crush, uh, the seed of the serpent will crush his heel. But that's a promise of what God is going to do to destroy the power of the devil. So that's one promise. And then as we go through Scripture and we start reading, we'll, we'll see the promise made to Noah. Remember the rainbow uh, as the sign of that covenant. And then the promise of the covenant made with Abraham. And then you read far enough into the Bible, you see the promises that are then made to, to Moses, where the law is given. And even later, there's a, a promise made to David, King David, about his kingship and about his throne and about the one who's going to sit on it forever. And so you see, if you follow the, uh, those five covenants in the Old Testament, you can see that uh, it starts with a seed in Genesis 3.15 and gradually as time goes on, God adds to the covenant and develops the, the promises and makes things more and more clear as time goes on as it points to the coming of a king and a kingdom. Until finally, in the New Testament, you get the New Covenant, which is foretold in, in the book of Jeremiah 31. The New Covenant. So you have six administrations of the covenant, but it's really just one covenant. Growing like a flower and coming to full flower as Jesus Christ comes. And the essential point is that these covenants present to us in, in ever-expanding and developing form the coming of the Messiah and his kingdom. And so the faith that we are speaking of here is faith in the coming Messiah sent by God and foretold in the oracles of God. And the evidence that people have that faith 
is to begin to be obedient servants of the Lord. Because suddenly the law becomes a delight to God's people. Instead of it being a burden, it becomes a delight. Because we know all his promises and all the things that God is intending to do for us. Now the question is, what happens if all the people fail? In other words, what happens if they prove to be faithless? Does that nullify the faithfulness of God in keeping all his promises? Does the whole covenantal arrangement collapse like a house of cards as though God had never said anything because the people of God are faithless? And the resounding answer to that is in verse 4, by no means, no chance, Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are, uh, you are judged. Now, why is, why is he saying that? Uh, you'll notice there that he quotes uh, from, actually from Psalm 50, uh, 51 that we recited earlier. Uh, Psalm 51, verse 4. And you may remember that. That's a psalm of David. It's a psalm of confession. Um, there's a story behind that psalm. David had uh, seen Bathsheba from a distance. He had finished all his fighting. He was wandering around in the middle of the day in his pajamas. And, uh, you know, he saw, he saw Bathsheba in the distance. And he decided, well, I'm going to have, a, a, have her. And he takes her. And she's married to someone else. And she gets pregnant by him. And so David tries to persuade Bathsheba to, to, to spend a night with, his, with her husband who is, is actually at the front fighting, but he calls him back and says, come on, go and spend some time with your wife to give an excuse, to give some cover for this pregnancy. But he's so concerned, Uriah is so concerned about the, the soldiers at the battlefronts that he, why should he enjoy the, the pleasures of fellowship with his wife? In union with his wife when his, his brothers are suffering at, this, at the battlefront. And so he doesn't do it. And so in the end, David arranges that he be put in the hottest part of the battle. It's a murderous intent on the part of David that Uriah should be killed. And so David is steeped in sin. It starts with a, something he sees with his eyes. But it ends up in murder. And he tries to cover it all up. And this psalm, Psalm 51, expresses his deep repentance for his great sins. And what he does is he recognizes that this sin that's against Bathsheba and against Uriah is primarily, first and foremost, a a sin against God himself. That he has proved unfaithful to God. And the verse that's quoted here in in verse 4 shows us that God would be right to judge him for his sin. And Paul is bringing out this point at this point in his argument to show that even though some Jews prove unfaithful, the covenant is still in operation and God is faithfulness. How, How so? 
How is God still maintaining his, covenant, his side of the covenant? Well, remember I said when God forms a covenant, he, he gives promises for the promised blessings, but also sanctions for, for sinfulness. In other words, the holy judgment of God can come upon faithlessness or unfaithfulness. And God, even when he judges, he is being faithful to his covenant. So for such Jews, there is no escape from the covenant arrangement that they're in. And so there can be no room for complacency. God is right to judge. So how how does this apply then to the church today? So we are in the last, uh, the latest and last phase of the same covenant, the new covenant with Jesus Christ. But the principle is the same. Having entered into this covenantal arrangement, either by professing faith or being brought to Jesus Christ by our parents, God still requires saving wholehearted faith in Christ. And this faith is never alone. It goes with a love for Christ. Remember uh, Jesus said in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Whoever has, in verse 21, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he is the one who loves me. Keeping the commands is a sign of love for God, love for Jesus. But the absence of that saving faith in Christ leaves a baptized person facing the judgment of God. And it's an alarming, an alarming thought for anyone in a church who assumes that because they attend or because they are baptized, they are somehow safe when they have no faith. You see, God remains faithful to himself and all that he has promised. Which brings us to the last question, which I paraphrase as, can we make God look good by sinning? (laughs) Can we make God look good by sinning? Uh, Paul anticipates this kind of strange way of putting the question. Um, And you see it in there in verse 5. If our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict his wrath on us? Or verse 7. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Uh, There's no end to the twistedness of human thinking in relationship to God. What's Paul getting at here? Well, if what he says in verses 1 to 4 is true, that my unfaithfulness brings out God's justice, isn't that, then the the argument goes, isn't that actually doing something good for God because it's highlighting his justice? Doesn't the lie that I live somehow bring out God's glory? And if that's true and something good comes out of it, then why should I be condemned by God if I'm doing something good for God by sinning? See how perverted that is? And the the thought behind it is he ought to reward my sinning because it makes God look good. Of course, Paul shows that this leads to a ludicrous conclusion. 
If only his imaginary questioners thought about it. Verse 6. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? There would be no, no judgment at all if that were true. You see, the people's argument goes something like this. God is just and judges unfaithfulness. Uh, Point number one. Point number two, but as God's people are unfaithful, it highlights God's justice. Therefore, point number three, because that is good, therefore such people shouldn't be judged. So you see the conclusion, people shouldn't be judged, contradicts the initial premise, God is just and judges. (laughs) It's an absurdity. The conclusion contradicts the starting assumption, therefore it's an error in the logic that God must judge. He must judge. He is holy. He is righteous. And he is good. And he will judge. He will judge. And Paul even suggests that this is not an imaginary person that's saying this. Uh, actually, people have, are slanderously accusing him of this. Uh, verse 8. Why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? And all of this, I think, highlights the tendency of real human beings uh, who do not want to put their trust in God to concoct the most bizarre arguments and make the strangest logical leaps. And the arguments are always in the same direction. To vindicate oneself before God while holding on to our sin. Isn't that what we do? We justify ourselves and still try and hold on to our sin. Everybody wants to get to that conclusion. That I can have my life how I like without a care for Jesus Christ and his words. And that whatever happens, God will not come for me in wrath and judgment. In other words, everyone thinks they have a get out of jail free card. I wonder. Do you think you've got one of those get out of jail free cards? Are you assuming that God will simply let you off with your sin and your unfaithfulness, and that God doesn't care about your pride and your self-centeredness and your self-oriented ambitions, all with a veneer of religion. Veneers look good, but they're fake, aren't they? We've got furniture in our house that's covered in veneer. Maybe you have too. It's not the real thing, but it looks like the real thing. But God is not fooled. There is no get-out-of-jail-free card. It's a delusion. It's the fruit of a mind that either can't or doesn't want to think straight. And believing that you have something when you have nothing at all. There's only one answer. And this is how you get out of jail. (laughs) It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul has been introducing to us in chapters one, in, in chapter one, and it's the it's that to which the oracles of God have been pointing all the way through. They point to Jesus, and who is now revealed. And you see, it's because of Jesus Christ that the righteousness of God is is no longer shown in judgment upon us, but His righteousness is shown in the saving work of Christ, who bears the punishment of the wrath in God's justice in our place. That he stands in the place of people like you and me, 
so that you and me, we don't have to stand under that judgment because we have Jesus. But note well that the faith that we are talking about here by which you appropriate Jesus Christ by grace, that faith is all-consuming. It will never leave you the same. It will radically reorientate your life. It will turn you round and turn you upside down. And everything will change for you if you have that faith. That God-given faith in Jesus Christ. Because this is a faith that will fill your heart with love for the Lord Jesus Christ. It will fill your eyes with a vision for what Jesus Christ is leading you to. It will give you all your hopes and dreams uh, centered on Him. That's how saving faith is experienced. When you hear His offer to come to, to Him and receive from Him, it will change your life. Anything else is not true faith. And I just ask you this morning, this afternoon, have you come to him this way? If you're not a Christian today, you may know that what I have just described is not you, that faith, that saving faith, that you'll know that that's not you. That you do not have saving faith. But let me assure you, the invitation is still there. The invitation that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel, which I proclaim to you this evening. Come to Jesus Christ. Put your faith in him. And he will save you. Yes, he'll turn you upside down. And he will change you. But he will never turn you away. So come to him. And if you're a Christian this evening, then I I hope you'll see what a wonderful thing, once again, what a wonderful thing the gospel is. What a wonderful saviour we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. That God is indeed a great God. There's none like him. There's none to compare with him. And that without his gift to you of his beloved son, you would be utterly lost. How privileged you and I are this afternoon if we have Jesus Christ. And I pray that your faith and mine will be strengthened in him. Let's pray together. Father, would you come into our midst and into our hearts And Lord, if we are already believers, have come to a living faith in Christ, oh Lord, strengthen our faith in Jesus Christ. Help us to live in the light of the privileges that we have. Help us to see the privileges. Help us to never take for granted all that we have in Jesus Christ, but to see what we have as infinite value and treasure in him. And Lord, if there's any here who are not yet believers, who don't know Christ. Oh Lord, would you open up their hearts to see their need of Christ, that there is no escape from the judgment of God except in Jesus Christ. And Lord, help them to come. 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.